0: Welcome to the Stephen Mansfield Podcast. Well, Welcome to the Stephen Mansfield Podcast. Great to have you with me. This is a special holiday edition of the Stephen Mansfield Podcast. I do this every year. I like to tell the Thanksgiving story. I think this is more important, perhaps, in our generation than it's been in many generations, because, as you know, many people are attacking our moorings as a people. Uh, Many people are questioning the values with which we were founded, and the stories are being lost. And so I love the Thanksgiving story. I want to tell it, and I want to tell it especially since it's falling somewhat out of favor. So gather the family if you want, and I'm going to tell... Uh, the Thanksgiving story from the pages of history. I should say first that many people today are negative on the pilgrims, whose story I'm about to tell, and largely because later in history, there were tensions between the descendants of the pilgrims and the Native Americans in that area. Uh, These were real, There were atrocities on both sides. But I need to say that these were almost 50 years after the original Thanksgiving, the story that I'm about to tell. And so we can't really blame the founding generation of the pilgrims uh, who got along very well with the Native Americans in that area. We can't really blame them for what came later. So I'm going to sidestep the controversies around the pilgrims for that reason, I believe that they're often blamed for what later generations did. None of them would have been alive those 50 years later, Uh, none of them primary actors in the Pilgrim story. And I just want to tell the Pilgrim story in its simplicity and its beauty. So our story begins with a congregation of separatists, as they were called, in the north of England in the early 1600s. They were in a town called Scrooby. And they were separatists. Now, what does that mean? You have to remember that just after the Reformation had occurred in England, uh, that there was an attempt to merge the best of Protestantism and the best of Catholicism. And Queen Elizabeth's courtiers and theologians called this the Via Medea. That's the Latin phrase for the middle way. So, there was an attempt to produce a nice blend between Catholicism and Protestantism, keeping the things that uh, would appeal to the people that were biblical. Uh, and trying to fashion sort of a new faith. Uh, This would have been the Church of England. This was the birth of the Church of England. But there were people who thought that it was not pure enough, that there too many compromises had been made, uh, that there were too many Catholic innovations, they would have said, uh, in the Church of England. So they separated And they focused on scripture and prayer and fasting and living under the direction of their leaders. And that's the kind of congregation you had in Scrooby, England, in the north of England uh, in the first years of the 1600s. Well, the problem was at that time that there was a great deal of persecution of separatists. The Church of England and the crown, the king, uh, did not like that there were people who disagreed with the Church of England, and so they persecuted them. And in order to avoid this persecution— what happened was this congregation in Scrooby, England under the pastorate of John Robinson decided that they would leave England and they would go to Leiden, Holland. Now, Holland was a place of religious liberty, but also of every other kind of liberty. In other words, it was a very libertine society. The separatists would have thought it immoral. They were very broad, ethically very broad. They uh, They did a lot of things that the separatists, Thought were sin, but still they knew they would be safe there from persecution. So in 1608, several hundred people from the congregation in Scrooby, England left England because of the persecutions they were enduring and went to a town called Leyden, Holland, which was just outside of Amsterdam. And they lived there for 12 years. They were a congregation in exile, and their lives were very hard. The reason was that they had had to leave the professions that they had known in England. Uh, One of them was a postmaster, for example. Others owned large estates. Um, Some of them were sort of upper-scale workers and clerks and so on. Uh, But they were uh, now doing, in, in Holland, they were doing manual labor. They were having to work on the dairy farms and work on the ships and do manual labor. And it was very hard on them and it was shortening their lives. Uh, also, by the way, they were very concerned about their children. Their children, of course, growing up in this very libertine, somewhat immoral uh, society and culture, were being drawn away by the attractions of the world, by the some of the sinful lifestyles of the people at that time. But these people will call the pilgrims—they aren't really officially pilgrims yet, but it's best to call them this—this groovy congregation in exile. Um, They're praying about God's purposes for them. They're seeking the Lord. We have from their writings that they would fast and pray constantly, and they would renew their repentance, they said. And they specifically prayed about the new world They said that they prayed for the natives in the new world, and they prayed that they might embrace the Prince of Peace. That's an exact quote. Uh, And they began to wonder if they had some role in taking the gospel to the new world. They'd been hearing a lot about the new world because of other people's travels, and so they very much wondered if they should sail across the ocean and take the gospel to the new world. Well, they lived for 12 years in Holland, as I say, and finally they came to the conclusion based on their prayers and based on their studies and based on what they were hearing of travelers to the new world and voyages that had been successful there, they finally concluded that God was leading them to go to the new world and to help to carry the gospel to a strange land. That's one of their favorite phrases for the new world, a strange land. So, in sixteen twenty they gathered their money, pooled their money, and they booked a passage on two ships that would leave from southampton england and To speed the story along, their pastor prayed over them. not all of the people who were in Leyden, not all of the people from the Scrooby congregation in Leyden could go. So there were just a couple of hundred, and they made the voyage back to England, just across the English Channel, and went to Southampton, where they were going to depart for the New World. There were two ships that they had booked passage on. One was the Speedwell, and one was the Mayflower. Well, they set voyage in 1620, and they just got slightly off the coast of England when the Speedwell began to take on water. And obviously, it was the case that they couldn't sail on the Speedwell, So they went back to England. They left the speed well there. Many people concluded that this was a sign from God they weren't supposed to go. So a lot of people simply stayed in England, probably returned to Leiden and to the people, their friends and relatives and their congregation in Leiden, Holland. And so finally, all of those who wanted to go, got on the Mayflower. There were about 104 of them and decided they would sail to the New World. Now, this voyage was terrible. Over 100 people on this ship, about a third of them were children. The Mayflower was a leaky wine barge, really not the kind of ship you wanted to go across the Atlantic Ocean on. And let me tell you that this voyage would last 66 Days. And because of some of the hassles they had had getting ready to go to the New World, they had been much, much delayed. So they were traveling across the Atlantic Ocean at a time of great storms when it was bitterly cold. In fact, the United States Navy tells us that at that time of year and at that time, had someone fallen into the ocean, they would have died within three minutes just because of the cold. They would have died of a thing called hyperthermia, which means they would have been so cold they would have died had they fallen into the waters. So they're sailing for 66 days through the storms. The water's bitterly cold. The ship is leaking. And The captain, knowing uh, that the people couldn't be safe on deck, uh, often kept them in the tween deck, down below one of the lower decks. Now, I've been on a replica of the Mayflower, and I got to tell you, I, I'm six feet four inches tall. I can't stand up there. Uh, even a shorter person, and they, the the pilgrims would have been much shorter than most of us are today. Around five feet, five feet two, maybe five four, five six would have been a tall man, and they would have had to bend over on this deck. So you got to picture the scene: people are throwing up, people are sick, a few people die. Babies are crying, people are miserable, people are afraid. Many of them have never been on a ship on the Atlantic Ocean or any ocean before. It was miserable. Many times the ship was being blown about, so much so that the ship would bend way over on one side so the mast dipped into the waves, and then way over on the other side so the mast uh, dipped into the waves on the other side. It was terrible at one point the storms were so violent that it caused a, a main beam to break a great big thick piece of wood that ran across the top of the ship holding it uh, keeping it strong and it cracked and fortunately the the separatists this we'll call them pilgrims now had with them a thing that was called a screw and it was used to raise the roofs on houses and hold up beams for construction of homes and so on and so What they did was they used this screw to hold that beam into place. So picture it now. They're sailing across the North Atlantic. It's bitterly cold. The voyage is 66 days. By the way, the Mayflower is no bigger than a volleyball court in size. Very small. Um, They got 104 people on there, one third of them children. It's a miserable, miserable voyage. Well, finally, finally, on November the 9th of 1620, had set sail, by the way, on September the 16th. On November the 9th of 1620, the Mayflower finally comes into Cape Cod, the region of Cape Cod in what we know as Massachusetts. Well, they had thought that they would sail to Virginia. They actually expected that they would be in the northern parts of Virginia, but they had blown way off course. They were hundreds of miles off course and to the north, and they realized that they weren't where they were supposed to be. They were deeply concerned, because there were both Christians and non-Christians traveling together, they were deeply concerned that they might not have the proper governing documents. They were concerned about going ashore with people who believed and people who did not believe. And so they concocted something. Two days after they came up on the land, they concocted something called the Mayflower Compact. And this is a very important document. It was uh, written and finalized on November the 11th, a few days after they came inside of land. And they say some very important things in this document. Let me read the whole thing to you. It's only a short paragraph long. They wrote, in the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord, King James, by the grace of God of Great Britain, France and Ireland king, defender of the faith, etc., listen to this now. Having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually, in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together in a civil body politic." This is the first covenant constitution, so to speak, of government in American history. And it's important for you to know that we have a constitutional country. We have a country that is bound together by certain principles and documents. And it was the first one, the Mayflower Compact. And let's remember that they sailed for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. Well, they searched around on the land for a while to see where would be the best place for them to build their settlement. And they did that for quite some time. It was very cold, very cold. In fact, they didn't actually decide on the place of their settlement until sometime in December. Now, imagine they're on the coast of what we know as Massachusetts in December of 1620. It's cold. They start building their huts. They're living on the ship at night's. They're trying to get their settlement started. They know they've got to get planting uh, food because they've eaten most of the food on the ship, but they notice now Native Americans paying attention to them. They notice that there are natives watching them through the trees and they're just nervous. So they have to have some of their men keep their muskets by them while the other men work and build the homes and, and build the fort that will take care of them and keep them on land. Well, finally, one day, a tall Indian strides out of the woods, walks up to the person he thinks is in charge amongst the pilgrims, and he says, believe it or not, in perfect English, do you have beer? (laughs) This is one of the funniest moments in history, but it's absolutely true. Apparently, this Indian's name was Squanto, his friend's name was Samoset, and They had traveled with other English sea captains around that area and had helped them as guides, and they developed a taste for English beer. So one of the first words said, certainly to the pilgrims, by Native Americans, was, do you have beer? Well, I'll make a long story short. These Indians became friends to the pilgrims. Uh, They showed them how to plant in the New World. They introduced them to other Native tribes in the area. Some of them weren't very friendly. They taught them how to harvest the sea. They taught them how to again do their do their farming in the right way. And the heads of the pilgrims later wrote, William Bradford, a, a man I deeply revere, a historian, theologian, the governor, later the governor of Plymouth Plantation, said that they would not have survived had it not been for their Indian friends Squanto and Samoset. Well, it's a beautiful story sort of but it also has its tragic side because the pilgrims have shown up so late that it's cold it's freezing obviously crops aren't going to grow in winter they have very little food and now begins what we know in american history as the starving time this is the time in late 1620 throughout the spring and the late the winter and early spring of 1621 when They have very little clean water. They get down to the point where there are only five kernels of corn ration for each person each day. Think about that. Five kernels of corn is all they had and some brackish water. Well, this is the starving time. Every family loses someone. Every family has a death in it. They get down to where there are a fraction of their original size. There are just a few dozen people, two or three dozen people left. It's a horrible time. And many people, all, all people starve, and a number of people die. So you have maybe now half the number of people who originally sailed uh, on the Mayflower as pilgrims. But because of what Squanto and Samoset have taught them, because of what they've learned about the New World, they begin to plant in the spring. They're still hungry. They're still eating very little, but they begin to be able to find natural berries. And because it's not winter, they have more plentiful harvest from the sea. And now they're planting wisely as the Indians teach them. And they are going to have an abundant harvest come the fall of 1621. And this now is where we encounter the first Thanksgiving. It had been common throughout Christian history for people to declare days of fasting and prayer and also feasting and celebration of God's goodness. And so there came a day where the governor said, let's celebrate. We've had a good harvest. We've passed the starving times. We've had lots of grief. Let's celebrate. So in fall of 1621, they decided to have a day of Thanksgiving. And here is the description of that from uh, William Bradford, who wrote, the book of Plymouth Plantation, a description of many things that happened there at Plymouth. And here's what he wrote. Our harvest being gotten, our governor sent forth four men on fowling, meaning hunting for birds, so that we might, after a special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruit of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl, meaning as many birds, with a little help beside, served the company almost a week. In other words, they had a week worth of eating of birds that these men shot. At which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. They meant that during these days, they had shooting contests. Uh, Many of the Indians coming amongst us. And among the rest, their great king, Massasoit, this is the king of the Indians, and some 90 men, he brought 90 warriors with him, whom for three days we entertained and feasted. And they went out and killed five deer which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God, we are far from want that we are partakers of plenty. Well, this tells us a lot, doesn't it? The first Thanksgiving was three days long. They invited their Indian friends, 90 braves and a king. Uh, They vastly outnumbered the number of pilgrims. The pilgrims would have been excited to have them there to share the message of their God, but also because they brought, as you saw, as you heard, deer. They had killed a number of deer, five deer, brought a whole lot more meat, which is good because feeding 90 hungry any Indian Braves takes a lot of food. They would have had a lot of seafood at the first Thanksgiving, Uh, They would have had vegetable pies. This is where we get the tradition of uh, pumpkin pie. The natives would have introduced to them uh, a new thing they had not had before, popcorn. And they had that on Thanksgiving Day. And we're told that they wrestled and they fired their weapons in contests. So they had some sports, uh, kind of preparing and, and anticipating our own emphasis on football on Thanksgiving. And they would have prayed and thanked God. So, this was the first Thanksgiving. And I'll tell you, I'm moved by the story of the first Thanksgiving because uh, these first pilgrims sailed for the advancement of the Christian faith and the glory of God. They came because they wanted to bring the gospel to the new world. They were imperfect people, they made their mistakes, but they suffered greatly, losing friends and family members. And eventually, they survived, and the community survived. And they did not have hostile relations with the Natives, not in this generation. Instead, there were Natives there at the first Thanksgiving. And I love the fact that we have continued this tradition throughout history. Presidents have declared days of Thanksgiving. Lincoln did. Franklin Delano Roosevelt did. And uh, finally, it was settled on the last Thursday in the month. And I'll tell you that uh, one of the traditions that very much moves me is that in New England, for many generations, it was common, once the Thanksgiving meal was cooked and the tables were groaning with food, uh, the children often would be asked to put five kernels of corn on every plate. And people would gather around the table and hold hands and look down at those five kernels of corn, sitting next to the mountains of food that a typical Thanksgiving feast would have in America. And they would remember the starving time at Plymouth and remember what their forefathers had the price they had paid and remembered the stepping stone of the gospel of Christ. That's a quote from the pilgrims that they wanted to be in the new world and that they wanted to introduce the natives to the Prince of Peace. And I want to urge you to keep Thanksgiving this year, whether you do it in a restaurant or do it at home, whether you do it in your home or the home of friends or family, whatever the food, whatever the traditions, whatever the favorite dishes are, whoever's team is playing on television later in the day, I want to urge you to have Thanksgiving. I want to urge you you perhaps to put those five kernels of corn on each plate. Uh, Remember the starving time. Pray a prayer. Thank God for what he has done in this country. Thank God for the nobility of our heritage, the noble aspects of our heritage. And perhaps renew yourself in commitment to God that you'll live for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, and that you will devote yourself uh, to being a light of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the new world and in our generation. Happy Thanksgiving to you. May God meet you, may God give you grace, and may God give you courage to live in our generation. Stephen Mansfield is a New York Times bestselling author, a popular global speaker, and Senior Fellow for Public Leadership at Palm Beach Atlantic University. His groundbreaking books on faith and society include The Faith of George W. Bush, The Search for God in Guinness, Mansfield's Book of Manly Men, and Lincoln's Battle with God. Learn more at stephenmansfield.tv.